This is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings, and I'm your host, Greg Campion. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. If you like the show and want to hear more from us, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Streaming Income. Or visit us on Bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. On today's episode, I spoke with Bearings Charles Weeks about European real estate markets. Charles is head of real estate equity for the Europe and Asia Pacific regions here at Bearings. Based in London, Charles and his team are part of Bearings global real estate platform, which manages assets in excess of $40 billion as of March 31st, 2019, and is staffed with more than 300 dedicated investment professionals operating out of 28 offices around the world, including 12 in Europe. Charles has worked in the industry since 1992, and prior to joining the firm, he founded Protego Real Estate Investors in 2004, which was acquired in 2010 by the business known today as Bearings. In the conversation with Charles, we talked about the overall backdrop for European real estate markets today. Uh, We also talked about where the team is currently seeing value, both by sector and geography. And finally, we talked about how the team is taking an active approach, not just to value-add and opportunistic type investments, but also to core and core plus type investments, which for me was really quite interesting. Okay, Charles Weeks, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I'm excited to have you here today. I think it's a great time to talk about real estate markets and to talk about your area of expertise, European real estate markets. Um, So let's maybe start high level. Tell me about just what you are seeing out there today in terms of where we are in the cycle. What's the overall backdrop today for European real estate? Well, what I would say is that we are at the latter stages of an extended real estate cycle, which has now been going on for over 10 years. And uh, this is really as a consequence of the quantitative easing and low interest rates over the previous 10 years, which has extended this cycle somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are a number of headwinds that we face in the market at the moment. Fairly modest growth across the Eurozone at about 1.2%, uh, different markets on, on on different levels, of course. And of course, there are some broader concerns that you might have, including global trade concerns with protectionism. There's political uncertainty. There's uh, concerns about weakening economic sentiment. And this has all led to really uh, some transaction volumes decreasing in recent times. It's down about 15% year on year Hmm. for the first half of 2019 to about 114 billion euros. But fundamentally, the markets are pretty well underpinned. Increasingly dovish approach of the ECB and the Bank of England Mm -hmm. uh, and the expectation that interest rates are going to be lower for longer. There's certainly some resilience in labour markets, uh, resilience in particular in the service sector. And of course, we've got wages rising for the first time in a decade. So this bodes well in terms of sustaining domestic consumption. Mm. If we're looking at the real estate markets, the occupational market remains strong. There's not much leverage in the system. It's been constrained as a consequence of the absence of the banking fraternity. There's certainly tightening in uh, occupational markets, and this is leading to rental growth. If you look at pricing, the German Bund versus the prime uh, yield in real estate, uh, it's about 400 basis points spread between the two. Uh, So that makes uh, property well positioned. And of course, there's a weight of money uh, seeking real estate, which I think will support markets going forward. Okay. Okay. So to generalize, kind of late cycle... Um, but fundamentals actually look 
okay. And I know it's, it is hard to generalize, especially for a region as diverse as Europe, right? We've got everything from the UK, uh, which is a, a very dynamic economy, but with its own challenges of Brexit and the like. We've got Germany, obviously a major exporter and industrial powerhouse. We've got all of Southern Europe. Uh, we've got Scandinavia, et cetera. So as you look across that whole very diverse region, I mean, where are you identifying uh, value today? Well, we have a, uh, a house view relative value preferred strategies thesis that we follow, and this is followed globally within bearings. But this is basically identifying particular markets where we see relative value. And this is a top-down, bottom-up approach to looking at uh, individual markets. And within Europe, we break that down in particular by city profiles across most of the key markets within Western Europe. We're seeing value in many of the major gateway cities across Europe. Mm -hmm. We're seeing value in core value add as well as opportunistic approach in the different markets. So each market is moving at a different point in its own local cycle. But the markets that are standout markets for us are often those markets with the most constrained supply. So if you're looking at offices, for example, mm -hmm. we particularly like Stockholm offices where there's a significant shortage on the supply side. We like Madrid. We like Manchester. We like Amsterdam. And we like a number of the German cities, in particular Berlin as well as Munich. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. I think the way you're describing it, looking at cities more than countries per se, makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm guessing that's why, for instance, Bearings has got five different real estate offices in Germany alone, because uh, I'm guessing that the dynamics from city to city um, can differ significantly. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Germany is, is the largest market in Europe, but it's also one of the most complex and most opaque markets in Europe. The reason why we have such a significant presence with five offices and 50 people is really that Germany is a polycentric market. Because you're based in Berlin doesn't mean you can do deals in Frankfurt and vice versa. You have to be local to those markets. So, Charles, let's switch gears here for a second and talk a little more about sectors. Um, I'd like to get your opinions on you know, where you think there's attractive value today from a sector standpoint, if we look at sectors like retail, logistics, office, residential, I'm interested in kind of where we are with those. Um, so maybe let's start with retail. Well, retail is the one that sector of the market that's, I guess, the most heightened uh, at the moment as a consequence of e-tailing. Fundamentally, uh, there's strong domestic fundamentals, and that's reflected in above average retail sales in most of the markets within Europe. And, and that's really stimulated, as I mentioned earlier, through labor markets, rising wages and low inflation. But it's really the structural concerns that are dominating here. And Bearings has taken a significant underweight position uh, to retail. This has been a very conscious decision for us as an investment house. Mm -hmm. Yep. So talking about uh, e-commerce, the, uh, the, the shopping patterns are far more distinct in the core northern European markets uh, than the southern European markets. We're seeing internet penetration, certainly in the UK, which is ahead of most of the uh, other European markets, followed by Germany, uh, followed by the Nordics, where we're seeing internet penetration at significantly higher levels than we're seeing in southern Europe, where we still have internet penetration of only between 2 and 3%. Hmm. So uh, relatively modest levels so far in Southern Europe, but that is still impacting on pricing because there is an expectation that Southern European markets, like the Northern European markets, will be hit by the change in shopping patterns. And 
you know, it's not as binary as it's just about e-tailing. It's also about floor space, how much floor space per capita in the individual markets that you're looking at. And that's an important factor that we need to take account of. For example, the UK has relatively high floor space per capita compared with other European markets. What we're really seeing is an absolute crunch on anything that is secondary and certainly tertiary in the retail sector, Hmm. uh, where, uh, frankly, uh, we're seeing significant capital erosion. So um, I think for any retail that we look at, you have to be absolutely dominant to your catchment uh, and have that kind of monopoly position. You don't want to be concerned about threats of uh, any new development coming online close to your retail assets. I think nowadays you need a larger leisure component to your retail. And if possible, when you're buying retail, and we've successfully achieved this uh, in recent times, is buying below replacement cost. So I think there's still a significant way to go in the retail sector. It's going to take time. You have to be patient. But I think there is some way to play out before we realize uh, the full impact of e-tailing on the stores, shopping centers and retail parks that we have been used to uh, over recent times. So where retail may be you know, losing out, at least for the time being, with regards to the change in consumer behaviors, perhaps... Um, the beneficiary of that is the logistics space. So I know that you and the team have been uh, really quite active in that space. So can you talk a little bit about um, what you're seeing in logistics? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The beneficiary of retail's demise, if you like, is the logistics sector. And we've been strong advocates of the sector across Europe, and it's been the most significant sector for investment in recent times within bearings. And we would expect that to continue going forward. Take-up has risen for the last six years in the sector. Vacancy has been falling each year. Back in 2009, it was about 15%. Vacancy rates now around 4%. This underpins uh, rental growth. And it's really as a consequence of this supply chain disruption. And it's really that that's underpinning demand. And we're looking at Southern European markets as well as the core Northern European markets as well. Uh, So despite that the impact is is less pronounced at this stage in southern European markets. We feel that that uh, that push uh, towards e-tailing will occur in the southern European markets, so we're preparing for that opportunity. Yeah, that makes sense. Just on a on a bit of a delayed time frame. So it sounds like that's one that's more of a long term structural trend, and you've got different geographies sort of at different places in development. There. What about? And this maybe is more cyclical, but what about? Uh, the office space, you know, rents being higher and occupancy being higher during times of economic strength and then the reverse happening. Given that we are perhaps late in this cycle, how are you thinking about office space and does that really vary by geography as well? Yes, yes, it does. And and again, uh, I I would make the overriding comment that that, um, if you're looking at the major gateway cities of Europe, uh, they do have exceptionally low vacancy rates currently. So we haven't seen a big ramp up in uh, new build uh, of offices in these major gateway cities. So what we found is we got relatively low vacancy rates uh, in most of the major gateway markets. And in, in many markets, they're continuing to fall. I think across Europe, uh, the vacancy rate is around 6%. Uh, And what we usually find is the inflection point for rental growth, certainly in the UK, is anything sub 8%. 
It is the case that offices, certainly in London, uh, tend to be uh, about the most volatile of the sectors mm -hmm. of the market in uh, adverse market conditions in particular. But we haven't seen that spike uh, in terms of development stock, uh, nor is there much leverage in the systems. I think this time around, it'll be uh, much less pronounced. I think there are certain markets where there are real pinch points. So if you're looking at Hamburg, you're looking at Munich, you're looking at central Paris, you're looking at Berlin we've got vacancy rates which are sub 4%. Mm. Uh, so again, uh, exceptionally strong uh, rental growth opportunities in those markets. I think that makes the office sector quite well positioned. So Charles, we talked about retail, logistics, office. What else is out there? What looks you know potentially interesting? What's the team focused on? Well, we used to have a, a term in Europe that we called alternatives. And alternatives basically comprised anything with beds. So it comprises apartments, it comprises senior housing, and it comprises hotels. Now, I know these are relatively mature markets uh, and established markets in the US, and indeed, in some markets within Europe, they're relatively mature markets. So, for example, residential investment in the Netherlands has been a, a, a long-standing part of the investment horizons for institutional investors in the Netherlands, whereas in other markets, it's been less evident. And that's partly as a consequence of the history of residential investment, where I think a number of years ago, a number of governments placed uh, rent restrictions and it became more of a political mm, uh, issue rather than uh, a free market uh, opportunity. But in more recent times, as a consequence of, I guess, uh, the constraints we're seeing elsewhere and the amount of capital that's looking to invest into real estate markets across Europe. Investors have been far keener to think about this alternative sector because hmm. it provides strong, stable cash flows. It provides attractive yields and potentially attractive capital returns going forward. So we've seen record levels of investment in the alternative sector in some markets. So for example, in the UK, 30% uh, of all assets acquired this year uh, were in beds, i.e. apartments, seniors, senior housing and hotels, mm -hmm. uh, which is a record for the UK. And I think that uh, that process of investing in that part of the market is likely to continue going forward. And certainly Bearings has been right at the forefront of that. What we have seen as a consequence is that yields have been moving in, uh, in particular in apartment hotels, and they we're now at record levels, so around 5% levels, 5% territory uh, in the alternatives, certainly in the UK. Got it, got it. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's interesting to understand how that trend is kind of developing and almost the alternatives, what's been called alternatives in the past, maybe becoming more of a mainstream uh, asset class today. You know, speaking of investors and how investors are looking at gaining exposure to real estate broadly, um, I know there are various kind of attachment points on the risk-return spectrum, uh, from core to core plus to value-add to opportunistic. So can you talk a little bit about, maybe just help us actually define those terms, and then from an investor standpoint, what do you think that they are targeting or could you know, reasonably achieve um, at a market level for each of those categories in terms of returns? The distinction is based really on uh, stock-specific risk, expected returns, and hold periods. And we at Bearings, we invest in all three segments of the market. 
If you look at core markets, these tend to be stabilized assets. They're bond-like assets from an income perspective. They're easily relatable. They're on strong covenants with long leases uh, and often located in the largest and most liquid markets. So uh, stock-specific risks are low, uh, but then yields are low as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to be uh, acquired by investors that have relatively long-term time horizons, and they require minimal detailed asset management plans. They may require uh, rent reviews or lease renewals, and not that much in terms of uh, capex expenditure. But the target returns on those types of assets are likely to be between 6 and 7%. I think when we invest in core uh, as a house, I'd say that we adopt a very active core approach, uh, if I may describe as that. In other words, what we're not is we're not coupon clippers. So we Mm. don't buy an asset, despite it having very core credentials, uh, and just clip the quarterly coupon or the Mm -hmm. rent each quarter. Uh, We like to actively manage all the assets that we own within our portfolio. So some investors, uh, for example, might look at an asset and think, well, that's a very core asset. There's not much I can do that. It's a good position. It's in a great location. It's a high quality asset. It doesn't have any uh, CapEx requirements and it's fully leased and I've got a a good cash flow on the asset. So we we don't stop at that. We're always looking to create value. And the way that we do that is we're always looking to improve uh, the NOI, the net operating income on the assets that we own. So we look to do that in various ways, but in particular, we have specialist asset managers. So by sector, so for example, uh, I'll pick on one asset that we have in London, uh, which ostensibly was a very core asset. It's called Nexus Place, okay. and it's in close proximity to Crossrail. But we acquired that asset, fully leased and well-let to good credits. But what we haven't done is we haven't just sat back and collected the rents. Mm. What we've been doing is we've been working the rental profile on that building. So using our specialist asset managers, we've gone in there, we've spoken to all the tenants, uh, we've done some rejigging, we've done three new lettings, we've done uh, a number of rent reviews, I think six rent reviews in total. And what we've succeeded in doing is taking the base rent from about £32.50 per square foot up to £66.50 per square foot on the mm. top floor, the best wow. floor uh, within the building. So as you can see, we've significantly improved the NOI on what was ostensibly a very core asset. So a lot of investors would have just sat back and received the income. That's not what we do. We adopt this very active approach uh, to our asset management plans. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, I think, because maybe there's a view that at the core level, it is just that buy and hold. So that's really interesting for me to hear that actually there's a lot more to it, even when you're buying these really premium, well-located assets that already have great tenants. There's more to do and there's more value to drive out of that. So I think that's a great point to make. Whereas value-add investments, they tend to have vacancy, they require repositioning, Uh, They have capex requirements, and basically it's often about acquiring, fixing, and selling. Ideally, you want to play within a single cycle, so you know that you're getting out within the same cycle, or you're buying at the low point in a cycle because the expectation is that the cycle is in the upswing and you're going to benefit from additional 
rental growth. It could also include a situation such as forward fundings or might involve forward sales where you're taking a view on uh, buying a building from a developer. So you're buying the completed assets. So the developer is taking the risk in terms of uh, cost overruns and timing, but you're buying it vacant. But you're buying it vacant because you have strong conviction you'd be able to lease up that asset quickly and then sell that asset uh, into the market. On value add, you may have maybe seeking returns, which could be in the region of 10 to 12%, but they would be levered returns uh, where you may have leverage rates of up to 60%. Uh, a much more significant component of the return will be as a consequence of capital growth rather than income. Is there an example more on the value add side that you can give? Yes. Um, a good example of that is the, is the complicated uh, uh, execution of the business plan for Via Polar, which is an asset that we acquired uh, in Milan. It's in the Porta Nova district. It's a 1970s uh, rather ugly building. It's about 12,000 <laughs> meters squared. Um, Two tenants in occupation. We managed to get vacant possession. The rents passing at the time were 159 uh, euros per square meter. Uh, the market at the time was 261 euros per square meter. And uh, uh, we've done a comprehensive repositioning of this asset. We secured additional space within the building. We've leased most of the building up now. Uh, and we're retrieving rents uh, over an excess of 400 euros per square meter. Hmm. So as you can see, significantly higher than even our original expectations. That's great. And then I know the lines can gray from sort of core to core plus to value add to opportunistic, but how do you then define uh, opportunistic? This is the highest risk and highest return form of investment. This would be, for example, ground up speculative development, uh, such as we've done in Berlin. We're doing the same strategy in Manchester in the UK at the moment, one of the fastest growing cities in the UK. Again, a chronic shortage of grade A space. So all the uh, elements that you would hope for are encapsulated in the Manchester office market. But we'd be targeting uh, much higher returns. So we'd be targeting returns of 15% plus uh, and your leverage rates would be much higher. You'd be talking 70% uh, plus uh, in terms of your leverage rates. You'd exit your investment as quickly as possible once you've leased up the building, it's cash flowing, it's stabilized, and the core investor would then be the natural buyer for that type of high quality, brand new asset that you've developed. That's really interesting to see how some of these are actually playing out in the real world. Well, Charles, we have covered a lot of ground here, talking about your views on European real estate overall and getting into some details on things like sectors and, and trends that you're seeing. What are some of your key takeaways for investors in the space, people looking at this space for potential investment? What would you like to leave people with today? Well, I guess despite the late cycle, uh, there are still good opportunities in the marketplace. That's what we're seeing. So we're seeing good opportunities from a core perspective, good opportunities from a value-add perspective. And I would say on the opportunistic side, I'm not sure I would be making opportunistic investments at this particular point uh, in the cycle. But what's absolutely critical is that you are local to your markets. Local to your markets in terms of origination, in other words, deal flow, sourcing transactions locally in the markets, understand the nuances of the market, understanding the cultures of the market, uh, the ability to execute in the market, and often the ability to execute off market. In other words, uh, buying assets where they're not formally marketed, but are available to a limited number of investors. 
And then it's about the execution of business plans. I think it's also important that you keep uh, all your skill sets in-house where at all possible. So we outsource very little. We do the investment management in-house. We do the asset management in-house, project management in-house, and even development services in-house in some markets. And I think that in my mind, allows us to retain all the value enhancement aspects of real estate within bearings rather than outsourcing uh, some of these responsibilities to third parties where you lose control and oversight of your investments. And the final thing I would say is I think where we are perhaps a little bit different and within bearings in Europe is I think that... um, I think we have an interesting pedigree, if you like. Uh, you know, we come from a business that were either, frankly, startup businesses uh, back in 2010 when uh, Mass Mutual, our parent company, acquired our business. So I think there was an entrepreneurial edge to our business. And, and that's the same with our German colleagues as well, where we bought another business in Germany. So I think that gives you an entrepreneurial edge. And many of our teams, in, in particular in Southern Europe, uh, come from the private equity world. So I think that combination of startup private equity, but within the context of a, a large institutional manager owner uh, like Mass Mutual, I think provides for a very interesting uh, and powerful combination. Yeah, definitely. All very good points. I think that's great to leave it on as well. I think for me, the concept of being local to your markets really kind of shines through and having that global context as well. And obviously, the ability to operate in these markets all the way from acquisition through the asset management to portfolio management, it seems quite valuable. So, Charles, thank you so much. Uh, This has really been informative and educational for me and I hope for our listeners as well. So thanks so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks again for listening to today's show. If you have feedback or ideas on how we can improve it, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. And if you'd like to stay up to date with our latest episodes, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're there, please take a moment to rate the show or leave us a review. They're all very much appreciated and they make the show easier for others to find. Thanks again for listening.